Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 222. From Habsburg to Valois. Just to remind you that I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. Podcast of the month is called The Cannonball. Claude and Danielle have set out to read and discuss each and every one of Harold Bloom's Western canon of literature, a quest to think through the impact of all those classic books. To find out more, search on iTunes for The Cannonball or go to their new website, thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Or there's a link on the History of England website to boot. Last time we'd seen the execution of one of England's greatest magnates, and the renewed thirst for war by our young, glorious prince. Well, I say young, he's heading into his thirties now, and you can't really call that young, can you? I'm sorry. Maybe our Staring into the abyss of middle-age mortgages, economic servitude and middle-age spread prints would be more appropriate. Anyway, faced with a bill of £800,000 for war, Wolsey and Henry had reached the inevitable conclusion to get that kind of money they'd need to call a parliament. It's interesting, I had kind of forgotten about parliaments. And that's probably because in fact Henry had proved himself a rather rubbish caller of parliaments. By April 1523, which is where we are now, by the way, April 1523, it was eight years since he'd called one. It's a reminder of why some historians don't consider parliaments to be yet part of England's constitutional system. They were absolutely called only at the behest of the king, and they were therefore occasional events. And from Henry's point of view, they were a lot of work, and they took you away from the real business of hunting, dancing and singing – and they were irritatingly consultative. But oh, go on, Wolsey, call them up then, lad, and let's have done. Neither of them imagined it was going to be a massive problem. The common people of England would be overawed by Tudor pomp and circumstance by shock and awe, and as they were dazzled by the light shining off the cloth of gold, they'd sign any cheque put in front of them. Henry Wolsey and the Royal Council duly stood before Parliament in the Great Hall at Blackfriars in London to convene the Parliament and told the members exactly what was required of them and then sent them off home for a bit of feasting and fun. But to their disgust, two weeks later, Wolsey was back in front of the House of Commons because they wanted a bit more detail. They wanted a bit more what? Who do they think they are? But Wolsey appeared and he made it quite clear to the gentry and knights of the shires and the burgesses of the towns, why they needed to cough up and hand over the dough. The French king had broken the league. He'd refused to hand over all that money he'd promised as part of the French treaty. Therefore, said Wolsey, he assumed that the commons would cheerfully assist the king in vindicating his honours 
by granting the surplus necessary on this urgent occasion. Mentioning as a BTW that this meant £800,000, he swept from the hall, leaving the Chancellor Thomas More to employ all his considerable skills to persuade the Commons that a 20% tax was fair, reasonable and wouldn't break the bank. He was facing an uphill struggle, given that the normal tax voted by Parliament was about 7%, maybe 10% at a stretch. Thomas More had problems getting his message over, since most of the members were busy picking themselves off the floor. Now, a feature of Parliament in the reign of Henry VIII, as we come towards the most outrageously radical changes in the way England is governed in ten years or so, under the guiding hand of that most excellent and ruthless of ministers, Thomas Cromwell, will be Parliament's quite remarkable compliance. Authorised the destruction of a thousand-year-old tradition of belonging to the community of Christendom? Certainly, sir. Change the succession again because I've chopped the head off of one of my queens? Good idea. Where do I sign, sire? But on this occasion, Henry was attacking something far more fundamental than the members' principles. He was attacking their purses. And I have to say, £800,000 is a stonking sum. Where did that number come from? We've been used to talking about subsidies that raise something north of maybe, oh, I don't know, £110,000 in a good year. Now we're talking £800,000, the cheek of it. And so for once, Parliament did not roll over and politely request the tickling of their collective tummy. They asked Woolsey for a bit of a chat. Well, this got Woolsey proper blazing, and he brought to bear all the magnificence, wealth and power to overawe them with maces, pillars, poleaxes, crosses, and the finest of his hats, fresh from the altar at Westminster. Woolsey thundered. During the thundering, one of the arguments he advanced as to why the tax was so critical was that poor old Henry had been impoverished because he had to offer all those fat feasts and rich clothes all the time now, because that was the fashion. Bullsey thundered that he would rather have his tongue plucked out of his head than move the king to take a penny less. As the thunder finally died away, Woolsey was greeted by an obstinate silence, broken only by a mysterious clanking noise, which on closer inspection turned out to be a number of members helpfully offering tongue removers to the great cardinal. Woolsey therefore changed tack and did the thing they always do on the West Wing, the collaring individuals, putting pressure on them to come into line for the big vote. But none of it did any good, as rumours spread out from Westminster into the countryside and the peasantry grew restless as fake news and misinformation sprung up here and there and everywhere about the coming tax, Woolsey and his king were forced to accept half a loaf. I have to say, though, £400,000 still a pretty whopping loaf by any previous standards. Now, what are we to make of yet another expedition into France by a king who is beginning to see diminishing returns from such ventures? The first expedition had been a bit of a triumph. The second, well, meh. But what was the third going to offer? Well, it's been pointed out that things looked pretty good. Diplomatically, France was essentially buried, as in dead end. Ranged against them was, of course, the Empire. The Pope the Venetians, the Switzers. And there was an added bonus in that Charles, Duke of Bourbon, was in rebellion against his liege lord, the King of France. And that was great. That was just like the good old days when France was incapable of presenting a united front 
and so gave English a fighting chance. A large French army was pretty soon pinned down in northern Italy, and so an invasion in northern France seemed a good bet. It has, however, been pointed out that these alliances were always, always a complete waste of time and effort, which always fell apart as soon as the balance of power wobbled too far one way or t'other. That even the whole idea of war, as far as England was concerned, was just a rubbish one, an idea so rubbish that even the rough end of pineapples were positively glowing with attractiveness. Because if either France or the Empire did actually manage to win, it would leave England out in the cold. She was, as we have said far too often for her poor, battered pride, too weeny to take on either of these states on her own, so the defeat of either left England alone in the playground with a big bad bully. But hey, Henry had dreams of glory in his heart, his head and his codpiece. Not just Henry though. Wolsey had his reasons too. Political, personal, power-hungry reasons. I'm not suggesting that Wolsey was venal enough to take his entire country to war purely for his personal ambitions, but there was a useful by-product. Because Wolsey had changed his tack in the battle against the Minions, the Carews, Bryans, Comptons, Guildfords and Nevilles of this world. He tried banning them, and like naughty puppies they returned to the pool of wee. He'd tried distracting Henry with all sorts of reforms, but the problem with that was that it distracted Wolsey too, and hard-working though he was, even he had limits, so he had to stop that. The new tactic was to make all those minions work so hard they wouldn't have time to get together and whisper into the king's ear and so mess things up for Wolsey and get in the political flight path of Cardinal Airlines. And so, minions were sent on the king's business far and wide. Even William Compton was forced to leave the king's side on the king's stool and was sent instead to Scotland. Others were sent to France or further abroad. Now Wolsey might have thought he was being subtle, but even at the time folks had a suspicion of what was going on. John Paulsgrave was a poet and commentator of the time, and he was probably only exaggerating a little when he wrote that Wolsey had undone all the young gentlemen of England that served us, and sent some beyond the sea on embassies, and devised means to linger them there still, because he would have them out of the way. Wolsey would keep working on this, culminating in the Eltham Ordinances of 1526, which we'll come back to when we get there. But even for the moment, the king began to look around him and notice a lack of finely dressed gentlemen to help him with the daily round of kingship, like processing to the chapel or going hunting or having a good sesh on the royal stool, all that sort of thing. In 1521, he even wrote rather plaintively to Wolsey that he hath now very few to give attendance on his person in the privy chambers. The great invasion of 1523 got off to a slow start, partly because Henry and Wolsey argued about strategy. Actually, it seems to have been Henry that was the more cautious, oddly enough. He argued that the campaign should have a limited objective, the town of Boulogne on the French coast, to give England another jumping-off point for trade and invasions of France, that sort of thing. It was a plan that had the advantage of the same level of selfishness all these allies tended to display in any given circumstance. Use your ally until you've achieved something for yourself, and then be the first to make peace and run before you got caught in all the explosions. Henry also worried about the practicalities of an invasion which had a lot of fortresses to work their way through before they could reach a larger, grander objective, Paris. 
Wolsey, meanwhile, was all grand strategy and lofty dreams. Forget the little stuff he expanded. This must not be a war of small objectives, of sieges and margins. Let's just go to the big one and march straight on Paris. Actually, you suspect Wolsey might also have been looking at the bank statements. The siege of Boulogne would probably be expensive, and a long war was expensive. Wolsey wanted this done this year, all or nothing. It was Wolsey that won the argument and talked Henry round. Sadly, by the time the grant had been wrung out of Parliament, the arguments had happened, the army had been put together, it was late summer. But still, a much reduced but still effective army of 10,000 men turned aside from Boulogne in September 1523 and headed towards Paris. I can hear you clucking worriedly as I say those words. September, you say. Surely far too late in the season for a campaign. Tut, and you say again, tut. But hey, the king's best mate, Suffolk, made hay. In three weeks they made 75 miles of progress, crossed the Somme and were but 40 miles from Paris. Henry allowed himself to hope, to dream. Suffolk wrote to Henry exclaiming that there was now good likelihood of obtaining his ancient rights and title to the crown of France, to his singular comfort and eternal honour. Sadly for poor old Henry, this was in fact the high point. Now the English paid the price for their late start, the weather closed in, rain and even frost, men began to die, artillery became immovable. Elsewhere, the Spanish were defeated by the French, the brave rebel Bourbon decided to run back to Genoa before he'd done anything. And so, faced by disaster, Suffolk stiffened his lip and ran away, all the way back home. But honestly, his army would probably have gone without him. When Suffolk arrived home, Henry reacted as a king in the full possession of his majesty should. He nobly and impressively sulked. Suffolk was in fact one of those people on whom Henry was never to visit the full force of his violence, but he banned Suffolk and his captains from the court in his disgust and disappointment. But Henry and indeed Wolsey had not yet given up on the idea of giving France a good beating. There was always next year. Surely next year would be the one. Charles was once more pleading and wheedling. If a holy Roman emperor wheedles, sounds a bit undignified, but I suspect he might have been wheedling and Henry and Wolsey responded to said wheedling. This time, they'd recruit a monster army that would march down the Seine, capture the throne of France for God, England, Harry and St George, and generally, hurrah. Oh, hang on, said Wolsey, we've forgotten something. What would that be, Wolsey lad? replied his king. We haven't got any money, not a bean. I've had a look in the cupboard and there are only cups, it's bare. Ah, With a heavy heart, the message was delivered to a wheedling emperor that England was dissatisfied with the performance of their allies, frankly. I mean, if you have a good look at 1523, you'll see that we were the only lot pulling our weight. Nope. You show us what you can do in 1524 and 25, and maybe then we'll join in. And meanwhile, they even welcomed renewed efforts from Pope Clement VII to arrange a peace, so that man could once more live in peace and harmony probably because that might help delay the war until England could properly join in again. Now, Clement the Who, I hear you say. Well, yes, there's been another papal death and we have a new pope about whom we should talk a little since he'll be with us for a while and through some pretty crucial times. 
Giulio de' Medici came from the famous Renaissance rulers of Florence, famous for their wars and political struggles in northern Italy, for their patronage of the arts. As I speak, I can visualise you imagining the glories of Florence, the Duomo, the Piazza del Signore. When I say that Giulio was considered illegitimate, maybe you're thinking of an insignificant twig of the Medici tree who went into the forest and became a deeply holy and pious man, rose through the church through an inspiration and solace that his piety and good works brought to thousands, and was eventually rewarded by becoming Pope. If so, think again, in the eyes of the church, actually his birth was legitimate, and this nephew of Lorenzo the Magnificent of Florence was a typical, sorry product of the Renaissance papacy, all politics, grand patron of the arts, and the product of nepotism. There's no reason to question the man's piety, but here is another man-made cardinal in 1513 by his cousin, Pope Leo X. Yet another Italian pope, elected in 1523, England was rarely capable of retaining his interest for more than a couple of minutes. I hate to give you an impression that I have a 500-year-old chip on my shoulder, but let me take you to 1532, when the struggle with Henry over the status of the English church is in full cry. At this point, the dead Wolsey's warning would have been ringing in Clement's ears, the warning that something dire was in real danger of occurring in England with the church. So indeed, in 1532, Clement did pick up the papal pen and he did write to Henry. What will this be? A plea for unity? Sensible suggestions for ways out of the impasse with the marriage? No, it was a letter asking permission for a papal visitor to come to England to see if there were any undiscovered manuscripts in English libraries. Surely not the main issue of the moment. Clement then is a Renaissance Pope very much in the standard mould and without any great exceptional qualities to recommend him. By and large, he will spend his life trying to steer the papacy through some admittedly pretty hideous shoals in the struggle between empire and France, will vacillate between policies, will never manage to rise above the struggle. His irresolution and his inability to raise his focus from Italy means that he bears a reasonable proportion of the responsibility for the success of the Reformation in both Germany and England. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, now that I've done a hatchet job on Clement, let's get back to the diplomacy thing. So Wolsey and Henry are searching their purses in vain for any money to join the glorious war against the French. It is deeply, deeply ironic that just at the time when Henry failed to deliver war in France, when three times before he'd done so despite the feeble performance of his so-called allies, he was absent at the absolutely critical moment. Seriously, his timing was utterly, utterly appalling. Because in 1525, at last, came the big one. A battle that was surely the result, the answer. 
You may in fact remember that I've covered this one before with you on the 24th of February 1525. The forces of the Empire and France met outside the city of Pavia. By this stage, a new word had entered the military lexicon which would terrify and dominate European warfare for a century or more. The Spanish Tercio. The Tercio was the perfection of the system of combining pike, swordsman and musketeer in an armoured infantry square to create a flexible and deadly formation that could respond to most situations as long as it held its formation. Each tercio was composed of 3,000 men, was carefully constructed of experienced professionals and held together by a fierce loyalty and professionalism imbued with the aristocratic pride of la reconquista. The key, of course, was the combination of arms. Pike to counter and neutralise the threat of the heavy French cavalry, the gendarme. Swordsmen to provide the flexibility to counter infantry or lightly armed musketeers, and musketeers to combat other musketeers and anybody else, of course. At Pavia, then, Francis was crushed by the Spanish Tercio, and to his absolute horror was himself captured. At the same battle, the last credible scion of the House of York, Richard de la Poole, the White Rose, was killed. On hearing that piece of news, back in England, Henry delightedly cried, God have mercy on his soul, all the enemies of England are gone. Henry was cock-a-hoop. In fact, it would be many generations before anyone would have quite as much hoop as Henry showed. While Charles did the decent thing, demanding that his court not celebrate the victory, but instead sympathise with Francis's loss, Henry forgot all about any search for peace, and he set about planning where, how and how hard exactly to kick a man when he was down. Though I'm with Henry on this, or at least in terms of the honesty of his reaction, I mean just look at me and tell me that in the secrecy of his own chapel to which Charles retired, the emperor didn't whoop and indulge in a few fist pumps when he heard of Pavia. I refuse to believe that he did not. Anyway, it's all a bit sad, because Henry started making plans. Now is the time for the Emperor and myself to devise full satisfaction from France. Not an hour is to be lost, he said. So imagine the poor little crestfallen faces of Henry and Thomas Wolsey when Charles's response reached them. This went along the lines of, uh, sorry, am I missing something? Where were the English at Pavia? What was all that stuff about the search for eternal peace? Sorry, pal, you're out. Hashtag dead to me. Just to make sure Henry didn't miss the point, Charles then dumped his betrothal to Catherine and Henry's nine-year-old daughter, Princess Mary, and married the 19-year-old Isabella of Portugal instead, whose inheritance of Portugal, bear in mind, yielded every bit as much revenue as did the Crown of England. Essentially, Charles had no desire to carve up France into little pieces and give Henry what he wanted, and thereby create a new powerful opponent in England. Charles too was out of cash, and he wanted peace. Oh dear. But to give him his due, and a due in fact you have to give Henry for the whole of his reign, he would not accept the consequences of the bad hand he'd been dealt. Forget that, he said, after a certain amount of non-diplomatic language and activity empire-wise, We'll go it alone. Call for my horse. Attack! At which point he might have felt a gentle but insistent tugging at his sleeve. Uh, boss? Yes, Wolsey, what is it? 
Where's your swordman? Attack! Bring me my horse by Harry and St George. Wolsey managed to explain that they had no money. Penniless, groatless, again. You might think that Wolsey was trying to make his master see sense, that England was too little, that his dad's policy of disentanglement had been the only sensible policy. But no. Although indeed, Thomas More was to relate that there was a faction on the King's Council that argued for this very thing. But in fact, Wolsey was the King's man and shot the very idea down in flames. So, money. The normal route, as you know, was Parliament. No one, least of all Wolsey, was daft enough to think that after the pain of the last time, Parliament was going to wear another subsidy. In fact, the subsidy of 1523 was still being collected in some areas. Wolsey hadn't liked having to climb down last time one little bit. He had no desire to do so again, and grovelling to anyone less than a king was really beneath his dignity, and he had a lot of dignity by now, did our Thomas. So, Thomas went back to his history books and went for the benevolence approach. You will remember this from Edward IV's days in particular, I think, since my son and I did a little playette for you, if I'm not much mistaken. A benevolence is basically a forced loan. Hey, pal, why don't you lend me £100? Or else, yeah, you'll get it back, sometime. Wolsey did not hold back. He demanded the payment of a sixth of the value of all movable goods from the laity and a fourth from the clergy. For those of you who prefer digital, that's 16% and 25%. I mean, blimey O'Reilly. As Cardinal, Wolsey felt on stronger ground with the clergy, obviously, but even 16% for the laity is pretty steep. Remember the days of a 15th, the good old days, as they called them. But I've kept the best till last in an inspired piece of messaging. He called this benevolence the amicable grant. Now, I know enough of business to understand the importance of a good message consistently reinforced, but seriously, it's got to be credible, hasn't it? Amicable grant made the unpalatable unenforceable. Anger at the Cardinal hit fever pitch. The Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham, reported that in Kent the people were saying they wouldn't pay a penny while Wolsey was alive. The Dukes of Norfolk and Suffolk swore there would be rebellion and that only Wolsey would be to blame. Thomas Boleyn suffered the indignity of being roughly handled in Kent. There was trouble in Lincolnshire and Huntingdonshire. And while this was going on, of course... There were reports coming in of the excesses and social revolution in Germany, with one of the most remarkable events in European history in the Reformation, the Peasants' Revolt of Germany. It's one of those points where I deeply regret being a history of merely England, but maybe I can mention it under the Luther heading at some point. So, as the tide of discontent and fury at the Cardinal rose round the country, Henry decided the time had come to cut and run. He came out in a blaze of fury with what has to be a completely fictitious claim that he'd never known anything about this amicable grant thing. And if he had known about it, he'd have stopped it right away. Some have informed me that my realm was never so rich and that men would pay at the first request, but now I find all to the contrary. With a fine display of royal power and insouciance, he ordered the whole thing dismissed and any wrongdoers pardoned. This is as complete a climb down as I think we have seen. I mean, good golly. It's very significant politically and diplomatically. 
Politically, it's the first time that Wolsey has comprehensively failed to deliver, and where, more to the point, Henry has publicly thrown his first minister to the wolves. Henry had no desire for the mud thrown up by the discontent to start splashing his robe. To give Wolsey his due, though, there appears to be reasonable evidence that actually he suggested the strategy of forgiveness and of passing the blame to himself. Wolsey loved his power and glory, but no one could deny his claim to be a good servant of the king. Diplomatically, Henry now has to abandon his plans to invade and conquer France. At the age of 34, the dream of Henry V appeared to be dead. There are two other codicils to the collapse of the amicable grant. One is just very funny. Henry wrote to the Pope to see if he would subsidise his invasion of France. But like the Holy Roman Emperor, now that France was humbled, the Pope didn't want it dismembered. And so Clement wrote back, and pompously he ticks Henry off, and says this. It was his duty to be a common father of the Christian princes, and not to enter any league to the offence of the other. Seriously, do they have no shame, these folks? Did he chuckle as he checked what his scribe had written for him? The second is the Treaty of the Moor in 1526, in which England now agreed a peace with Louise of Savoie, Francis's wife. The £20,000 a year subsidy was to be resumed. France and England were now friends. The Habsburgs, who had so disappointed Henry, were now rejected firmly. One more word on all of this. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to view all these continual wars that we've seen since Charles VIII and 1494 as anything other than just a waste of time. The messings about of a bunch of Renaissance princes in a fruitless and uninspiring search for dominance. I have much sympathy with such a view, which is why I mention it. But there were consequences. Such wars, of course, accelerated the move we've discussed previously towards greater centralisation and bureaucratic efficiency of the state, so critical in the history of the modern nation-state. They were also a massive distraction to the forces of stability at a time when two challenges faced medieval Christendom. It's very survival in the face of the Ottoman Turks, and it's unity in the face of the works of Martin Luther. England played an important role in Europe's future, small though she was, by encouraging and entering the war in 1522, for good or ill. Before we finish for the week, let us catch up briefly with the Berlins. In 1521, Anne returned suddenly from France. The reason seems to be marriage, and indeed the lass was getting a little long in the tooth and needed to be set up somewhere. And so Anne found herself, not for the first time, the object of the politics of men. Thomas Boleyn was the heir to the Butler lands in Ireland, which included the Earldom of Ormond. But Boleyn wasn't in Ireland, he was in France. And so in his absence, one Piers Butler had possession. Piers Butler decided he liked possession. He didn't want to give up possession, thank you very much, and as we all know, it's nine-tenths of the law. Eventually, after a bit of toing and froing and shenaniganising, it was suggested, as a compromise by the Earl of Surrey as it happens, hey, why not marry the Berlin girl Anne to Piers Butler's son James, and then everyone will eventually be happy. Now, for some reason, this idea, though much debated and discussed, did not go ahead. As it happens, Wolsey held James Butler hostage, so it was for him to make or break this marriage, and it's difficult to see exactly why he would oppose it. 
but for some reason he did not make it happen, and by 1526 James Butler was back in Ireland and Piers was still in possession. It could be actually that it was Thomas Boleyn that killed the idea, holding out for the earldom of Ormond as his part of the deal. If so, then Wolsey would live to curse the day he'd not been able to pack Anne off to Ireland. And I mean really curse. You know, the really bad words you can't use on a podcast. And so, back in England, Anne was introduced to the English court and she then appeared in the pageant and tournament on the 1st of March, 1522. It was given in the honour of the ambassadors of the Holy Roman Emperor, with whom Henry was at that time still in bed. The tournament turned on the theme of the cruelty of unrequited love. Anne was one of eight ladies representing the qualities of the perfect chivalric mistresses. They were beauty, honour, perseverance, kindness, constancy, bounty, mercy and pity. Anne played perseverance, her sister Mary played kindness, which is kind of apt in both cases. The king's sister Mary led as beauty, the Countess of Devonshire as honour, these two women who would be Anne's firm opponents in the future. Constancy was played by a lady called Jane Parker. Jane Parker would turn out to be Anne's nemesis. Anyway, these ladies are ensconced in green castles and a bunch of noble blokes led by the king representing the eight male virtues of chivalry are led out. The virtues are, for your reference and use as occasion presents itself, amorousness, nobleness, youth, attendance, loyalty, pleasure, gentleness and liberty. Hang on a minute, youth. Youth, a virtue? Come on. Anyway, rather delightfully, the men assault the women's castles by throwing soft fruit at them and after a suitable delay they surrender, and everyone has a big dance. Sweet. We should also introduce one more Berlin for you, since we've done Anne and Mary, George Berlin. There are many of the same problems dating George's age, but most historians, though not quite all, have him as the youngest, born around 1504. George's father had determined, of course, that his son should be a courtier just like Dad, a chip off the old block. So George was introduced to court at the age of 10 and was soon a page boy to the king. George was a young man of many talents. Even his enemies recognised that he was a quick-witted man of great intelligence. He seems to have been educated and designed as a courtier with great ability to get close to the king. And the evidence is there that he was indeed a great personal favourite of Henry's by the mid to late 1520s. His name comes up regularly in royal expenses as playing the king at bowls, tennis, card games and archery. He hunted with the king. He gambled with the king. In short, it's a pretty straightforward example of the kind of young minions Henry liked to have around him. There were lots of rumours and insinuations about George, that he was a great womaniser, that he was a homosexual, even that he was a rapist. None of these can be relied on. They derive from one source, George Cavendish who we have heard of already, I think, as Wolsey's biographer. Cavendish was a staunch Catholic and keen to discredit all the Boleyns. It's notable that even Eustace Chapuis, a man who seriously could not be keener to discredit the Boleyns, mentions not one of these claims. Anyway, by 1522, George is on his way on his courtier career, being included in a grant with his father, and then in 1524 he's granted a manor all by his own. And in 1525, he married the aforesaid Jane Parker. 
He was a young man on the up. Wolsey, however, had him and the other resurgent minions in his sights once more. With the arrival of peace with France, Wolsey had his problem of too many minions back again, since all that war and talk of war, of course, had helped him remove them from court. And now more of them were back, and Wolsey's reputation was damaged by the failure of the amicable Grant. Something would have to be done. However, we will speak of what he did do in future episodes, because the decks have now been sufficiently cleared for us to turn our thoughts to the biggest cause of the 16th century, religion. But before we go today, a little extra for you, with a rather fascinating contribution from Mary Campbell again about pronunciation. Quite tricky this one, because I have to talk accents which has never been a personal talent, but here goes. In America, we say marriage. In England, you say marriage. But what did Shakespeare say? He probably said marriage, with a very American emphasis on the R sound. In fact, he and his contemporaries might have sounded surprisingly like today's Americans. 400 years ago in England, words such as Bath and France were pronounced as they are in the US today, Bath and France, with the flat A as in hat. It would be another 200 years before the broad A was heard in England, as in past for past, or the dropping of R's, as in far for far, or the omitting of entire syllables, so saying secretary instead of secretary, and necessary rather than necessary. The British Library has made a recording called Shakespeare's Original Pronunciation, with 75 minutes of Shakespeare's most famous scenes, speeches and sonnets all performed in the pronunciation of the Elizabethan era. Some say the CD sounds like a mix of American and Irish English, with a trace of Australian thrown in as well. Others say they hear a mix of the English spoken today in America, Australia, Wales, Ireland and the West Country of Britain, along with flecks of nearly every regional UK English accent. But how could they possibly know how Shakespeare said his A's and his R's? Should we really be asking, how did Shakespeare say electronic recording device? Turns out it's not that hard, really, to figure out how Shakespeare and his pals spoke. There are three kinds of clues. The first is how they spelled things back then. Spellings were not standardised, and people spelled phonetically. That is the way they spoke. Shakespeare spelled the word film, meaning a membrane, as P-H-I-L-O-M. So it would have had two syllables, film. That's close to the pronunciation of film used by the Irish today. The second clue is in rhyming words. You can clearly hear the rhyme differences in Shakespeare's sonnets. According to actor Ben Crystal, who directed the British Library recording, Two-thirds of Shakespeare's 154 sonnets no longer rhyme, giving a pretty good idea of how greatly pronunciation has changed since 1600. For example, If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man loved. In 1600, proved rhymed with loved, sounding almost, but not quite, like proved and loved, with a trace of the U sound thrown in. Finally, there were books on pronunciation, written by linguists, grammarians, playwrights and poets. The playwright Ben Johnson wrote a grammar book containing, amongst other things, instructions on the proper growly pronunciation of an R after a vowel, as in far and heart. 
Using these clues, the British Library recording is believed to be 90-95% to correct. Rather amazing after 400 years. Thank you, Mary, and thank you all. Remember, you can find out more from Mary at anagrammatica.com. Now, next week, we have a guest episode from James on the Tower of London, the Bloody Tower. I think James is also going to have a competition for one of his books, so keep your eyes peeled and pay attention to the website or Facebook and all of that sort of thing. It's a great episode. You're going to love it. More puns than you can shake a stick at. The week after that, the 3rd of September, we arrive at the late medieval church. Was it rotten from foundation to tower or a vital, self-renewing pillar of society recklessly destroyed by a bunch of fanatics? If you're a member, you will have an episode also to listen to about the historiography of the Reformation, which since the 16th century has been a battlefield for the soul of religion in England, a battle which is far from over, let me tell you. In the meantime, thank you all so much for listening, for all your comments and participation on Facebook, website, iTunes and all that sort of thing. Good luck everyone and have a great week.